0: I think Eros is often confused with lust in in our world and it's it's not that it's a it's a deeper more powerful broader richer vein of of desire that can unify and, and can unite without confusion different aspects both of ourselves and of the cosmos it has to be real otherwise it's not Eros it can't just be a kind of lip service to kindness
1: Welcome to Psychology on the Cross. In this episode, I speak to Pia Shadari about her book Dynamics of Healing, Patristic Theology and the Psyche, published by Fordham University Press. Pia holds a doctorate in theology from the Department of Psychiatry and Religion at Union Theological Seminary in New York, and she's a founding co-chair of the Analytical Psychology and Orthodox Christianity Consultation. Thank you for listening in on our conversation. So, welcome to the podcast, Pia Chardave. Today we're gonna discuss your book, Dynamics of Healing: Patristic Theology and the Psyche, which was published in 2019 by Fordham University Press. It took me some time to read through the book, but I would just mm-hmm. wanna say that it's a it's a beautiful book and, and very thoroughly written. What you're doing is is tying links between the tradition and practice of orthodox Christianity and patristic theology with the field of depth psychology specifically or more focus on analytical psychology. So we're going to talk about the book and we're going to talk about your findings in, in all this research. But before diving into the book, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and and, and maybe what led up to you writing this book. Yes.
0: I mean thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. It's 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 really wonderful to have a conversation, a second conversation with you now and to explore some of these these topics. Um yeah, it's it's not a book I ever imagined myself writing. It's not something I set out to do a long time ago, but it was a kind of culmination of I guess many years of wonderings, if that makes sense, that I I care deeply about healing. I always have. And at a certain point in my journey, I became Christian, which was also an unexpected move for me. Um, And and Christianity is a a religion that, I mean, we don't always hear this emphasis, but in fact, is very focused on healing, that the, the church is a hospital and that even the early understanding of the word salvation had, I think, the, it's true to say that the early church used the word therapia—that there was a therapy of the world taking place. So there was this idea that something was actually being healed and restored, and not just kind of in an abstract way saved. And so I, I wondered about—you know—I come from a, a, my father was a scientist. I grew up in a scientific world and you know i i tried to hold these two areas together for a long time there's science there's psychiatry there's psychology and then there's religion and there's faith and there's apparently now what i was coming to understand in my own journey this whole area of healing in in the the church as well so i think for for quite some time i held i just wondered you know without doing much about it how do these areas relate do they relate Can God cure depression? You know, what? what, How? I mean, how how does this work? And eventually, I found myself in seminary, and and had the chance to to work in a really fantastic program that was run at the time by Ann Ulanov called, and at the time it was called the Department of Psychiatry and Religion, and. And this just seemed like a place to really wrestle out a lot of these questions, working with the you know primary sources from Freud, from Jung, Winnicott, Fairbairn. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was a really a, a deep dive. And at the same time, I was studying early church history with Father John McGuckin, who is an Orthodox theologian, church historian. And so, the <laughs> in mm-hmm. a way, the kind of the holding of the two areas was coming closer together. At least, I had everything in one school now and and was able to go from you know from office to office rather than from school to you know medical school to to religious school and so the the worlds were coming closer and and yeah i, I began to see and and feel and trust that there were really what i call in the book meeting places uh, that there's a some kind of sense of integration Which is, in fact, something that both Eastern Orthodox theology and depth psychology, as we know, emphasize. And and it made sense to me after a while that, of course, there would have to be because we are only we are one creature, and to so it so for our psyches not to be split between the sort of the divine and the natural, we would have to it would have to be integrated in us in some way and and i think that that's where i began to find that no it's not as simplistic as oh god will just cure your depression if you pray hard enough that that i think is a very dangerous place to go sometimes but but it is true that it's all connected and in some way and that there are places of shared understanding between orthodox theology and and depth psychology
1: and and how come that uh, you were drawn to or started to to go into to Orthodox Christianity of the different? Uh, can you say something? Right. About Orthodox. Well,
0: yeah, and I, and again, one more path I never imagined myself on. I wasn't raised um, with any connection, although my beloved second family is Serbian Orthodox. So I had a little bit of you know exposure as a child growing up, but that was it. I think. What happened is I, I got to seminary and I, as I mentioned, I was studying with Father John McGuck in early church history because I, I had had some experiences that, that led me towards Christianity, but I wanted to explore them. I kind of, I wanted to explore them in my own way, if that makes sense. I think a lot of young people who arrive in seminary and aren't necessarily on ordination track have questions and I, ha- I had questions and and I wanted to get back as close in time to the original event, the, the Christic event, as they call it, and then go from there to see what I was going to make of Christianity. I didn't want 2,000 years of accretions on, on top of it in in my understanding. And so I, I spent some time in in what I later came to understand as early church history and then also early church theology, and I found it captivating. And in large part because there was a very... Strong emphasis on experience that that people that the church fathers were writing out of a out of an experience that they'd had that this was experiential it wasn't abstract or cerebral as as heady as they can be mm-hmm. there was a real sense of connectedness to lived life and and that they had experienced something that led them to then change their lives to write to reflect to you know to to sacrifice themselves in, in many cases as well so I. I was drawn to that, and I also found increasingly that it seemed many of the questions I had about, sort of, as I got further along the theological journey and was able to ask more maybe involved or sophisticated questions of the theology than I had been previously, I had concerns about atonement theory and understandings of Christ's sacrifice and whether wouldn't that, in fact lead us to some kind of setup within ourselves if you know are humans bad and 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 God had to sacrifice himself to save us. And so what does you know, and doesn't that kind of clash with a therapeutic understanding that, you know, we're we're not bad and we have to work to heal. And so I had I had these kinds of questions. And I found that within the Orthodox Church, there was much every time I would ask these questions, they would be answered in a way that made sense to me. That yes, there is a sacrificial aspect, but we also have to focus on the incarnation and we also have to understand that this was a question, much like in therapy, of it was almost like a rescue mission rather than a kind of, you know, the sort of penal substitution of God had to die himself to satisfy God's own honor. The, the, the kind of legalistic understandings that came later or were emphasized later, some of them were there from the beginning. So I don't know if that really quite addresses what you're saying, but but I think I found space in the church for understandings that did not contraindicate or, or contradict what I was also learning in the, my study of depth psychology and in my own therapeutic
1: journey. Hmm. Um, and, and could you say something short of what also that, the, the, the therapeutic journey and, and, and Jung and analytical psychology, how you... how you got involved in that and also then also practiced as a therapist.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I was, well, I had, I had the great good fortune to study with, you know, really wonderful teachers at Union and Yulamov, Harry Fogarty, both of whom are union and in, 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 in the department of psychiatry and religion. And, and I found that there was a, a capaciousness there for, again, all kinds of experience and, and I don't know, I mean, I don't know how much the listeners will be interested to know and the differences between, say, Jung and Freud, but one of the, you know, as you know, one of the main differences as I experience it is that there isn't just the emphasis on the reductive in Jung, that this idea that we, you know, have to go back in time to find the origin of the wound or the trauma and then kind of wrestle through it, but there's also the the prospective. There's the question is, wh- where is the person going? Where is the symptom taking them and not just where does it originate Mm. and what is the telos of their journey and so I found that very enlivening because it's it's a very very hopeful paradigm Mm. I think for for healing to have you know as you know someone come in and say oh well you know I've got this and this I've got this depression or I've got this this crazy fantasy that keeps coming up or I've, I've got you know this kind of you know compulsion and then you know, one of my my uh, dear colleagues at my former training institute is working right now on a a whole paper and book on compulsion and the role that it plays in in moving us forward if we can understand it you know properly mm-hmm. so this idea of symbol as or symptom as symbol mm-hmm. and not just symptom as pathology or issue to be removed was very very powerful and, you know, and again, just to link it back, this kind of, it's almost an allegorical way of thinking, which was, you know, really a big part of early church theology. I mean, Origen and others used allegory all the time to understand scripture and to understand theology.
1: So for people like myself who are not well-versed in Orthodox Christianity or or Patristic theology, um, mm-hmm. I wonder if it would be possible to give some context or to define some key fundaments of Orthodox teaching that can be helpful as, as we're exploring these, what you call meeting places, between the field of Orthodox Christianity and analytical psychology.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a vast question. It's a very, yeah. I, it, it might be that along the way, it's yeah. easier to kind of flesh out a few things, mm-hmm. but I will say that maybe the first thing to know what comes to mind anyway. To me, the first thing is that Orthodox, is, Orthodox Christianity is a sacramental Christianity. So there's a heavy emphasis on the sacraments, which are in fact considered meeting places between the human and the divine. And back, I think it was in the 12th century, St. Gregory of Palamas wrote extensively on the difference between the, the divine energies of God the the sort of uncreated energies of God, and then the created energies of creation. And so this, it brings a few things in, which is the first is that the belief that God can be experienced directly in the sacraments. And it's not, again, it's not a cerebral experiencing, it's not a moral experiencing. I was just reading earlier a wonderful quote by St. Maximus about that, which I can bring up later, but but it's an ex- it's a direct experience of 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 the uncreated energies of the divine which then imbue our our we are created and the you know we're on this side of creation with, as, along with all of creation we are created we're not the creator and so the sacrament is the meeting place between the uncreated and the created and so that gave me then an immediate the second you bring experience in, you can now reflect on it. And the second you're reflecting on experience, you're already in the realm of depth psychology to some degree. So that that's sort of how that got set up. It's also a very sensuous experience of the church. There are the, the icons and the incense and the flames and the smell of the beeswax and the chanting and the paintings on the wall. It It, it really brings your whole, there's the prostrations and there's fasting and there's feasting and there, you know, so there's a very, it's very embodied, which also gave me a place from which to engage with the, with
1: the psychology. The, the second chapter in you, in the book, you you're given the title, that which is not assumed is mm-hmm. not healed, right. which is, as I understand the core maxim of patristic And I think the quote was from St. Gregor of Nazian, Nazian. Yes.
0: Yeah, and
1: and and with that quote that which is not assumed is not healed, you start to draw links to depth psychology and the valuing of the, the shadowy parts of the human psyche or, or the Id, right and, and, and integration of, of parts or complexes that right. we don't want to face.
0: Yeah, so, well, I, I mean, this is this is really core. I think you you know you've gone right to the heart of the matter because I think many people confuse religion with morality and as such have a kind of understandably so a fidelity to a certain moral I say not even moral stance but a moral self-understanding mm-hmm. and one of the things that Jung, I think, you know, struggled with in his own, you know, as as I'm sure many of your listeners know that, you know, Jung was the son of a pastor and grew up in a, in a certain time in, in, I guess you could say in Protestant history where, where the, you know, when you, when you read his writings, he's obviously struggling to find the meaning in the symbols of the church. And so anyway, so Jung goes on his own, his own journey and, You know, when he writes about the shadow and the need to encounter the shadow, I think over time he really developed his thinking on the shadow. But I think initially there was just some sense of, you know, oh, hey, look, you've got to really confront who you really are, not who you think you ought to be from a moral standpoint. And, you know, kind of like the Pharisee and the Republican Well, thank God I'm not someone who is envious or spiteful or greedy or jealous. And then, of course, you know, you go into analysis and you find out you're all those things. And so you, you know, I think he was sort of reckoning with the shadow in a way that the church actually encourages people to do as well through confession. But of course, in the Protestant church, you didn't have confession. So that's sort of, you know, one, one difference there. But I, I think that this idea that we would split away from the parts of ourselves that are not, that don't meet our own moral standards or our own sense of who we are or want to be, you know, I mean, that's sort of depth psychology 101, right? But the idea then that when you, the danger then in in bringing religion into that is that of course we can then say, well, there's the danger of putting kind of a God complex, I would say, rather than God on the throne there that says, well, don't don't go there into that part of yourself. I mean, don't look at the porn addiction, don't look at the cheating or the lying or the, you know, the stealing or any of that, because you know God hates that about you, and you've got to, you know, you can maybe take it to confession, hopefully you are, but it's nothing to be explored or understood in any particular way. Whereas, you know, Jung would say, oh, well, what, you know, let, <laughs> let's go right there and see what's going on, and so. I think that that which is not assumed is not healed was a kind of, it it just rang so clearly in in my head through the centuries of, my goodness, you know, if that's what they were saying, and they were saying it also with regards to, I mean, to many things. It was also to the, as Maximus picked it up later, had to do also with the human will, but it, it was a basic understanding of, if we are being saved by Christ, then Christ must have within himself all of who we are. Because if there's any part of us that is not in his human experience, it cannot be saved by him. Does that make sense? I don't think I'm saying this very eloquently. But you know, if he, if, if he knows suffering, then suffering can be healed. If he knows grief, then grief can be healed. But but the temptation then, of course, is to say, yes, but of course, Christ never did steal and he never did kill and he didn't, you know, do all these terrible things that we do. But he has to have had the ability to do it or else our will can't be healed, right? His will was free. He has to have had a free human will. And so I kind of elaborated on that to say, okay, but then so we're also talking about the psyche, then Like all of the psyche has to have been assumed into this project of therapia, of salvation. Otherwise, there's just parts of our psyche hanging out that can't be healed. And that's not what surely not what the fathers were saying. Mm. So that means even our porn addiction, even our envy, even our murder has to have some place in it where healing can happen, some place where Redemption can happen and not just in a, again, in a, in a juridical sense of like you're absolved and, and, and you can still, you know, have a shot at heaven someday. It's more, can it be reached and can it be integrated and can it be pulled back? And, and i found such a, a depth of wisdom in the patristics around, again, it's tricky because you, you can't, you don't want to be sort of anachronistic in in the using of the language, but You know, Pseudo-Dionysus talks about how everything has to participate to some degree, however minute, in the good, because if it didn't, it wouldn't exist Mm -hmm. because God is the good and God is being. And so even someone who has a, you know, a life filled with what you might call sin or complexes or however, Mm -hmm. is still attached, is is still participating in life. And so therefore is still connected to the good. And that's the starting point. And then I think where Jung took it further is then to say, I mean, sort of circling back to what we were talking about earlier, okay, but even this point of sin now, does it it have a purpose? Does it have a meaning? Is there, what is behind the, I'll just use again the pornography, you know, addiction Mm -hmm. online, it's so rampant that, is there a search for intimacy here? Is there a desire for communion here? It, it may be distorted, quote unquote, but is something trying to happen here? So rather than writing it off as a sin, why don't you explore it and see what it's trying to pull the person towards? And it seemed to me that when you do that, you will often find one of the goods of life behind that, the, the pulling the person towards eros mm. and communion and desire and you know all of those things that are embedded in it for them. So it's I think it's a very important understanding that that God's grace is is so beyond what we think it is when we set ourselves up as god and that it all is assumed in some way it has to be all of the human experience again not not to say that God and Christ, if, you know, if you're Christian, assumed all of the the sins, but but the but but all of the psyche was there, and it's the psyche that it's all rooted in. If that makes
1: sense. Mm-hmm. As you speak, I, I got curious about if the Orthodox Church and sacraments, if you would say that it, it holds uh, the therapeutic process alive or if there are things there that it would learn from or benefit from depth psychology or if it already has a depth psychology sort of integrate into it.
0: Well, I think, you know, we some years ago with some colleagues, we started something called the um, Analytical Psychology and Orthodox Christianity Consultation. It's called APOC. Um, and we we started putting together some gatherings to try to address exactly some of these questions so we would buy, invite um, orthodox priests and speakers and we would invite jungian analysts and and we would try and get a conversation going just across the across the border as it were mm-hmm. um and i think it's a you know it's a tricky thing to say it's both a tricky thing to say that neither one can learn from the other and it's a tricky thing to say that they can learn from each other because they're not operating in the same with the same set of assumptions and the same set of values, so I think you always have to be very careful to to respect that the, these are two very different animals meeting each other, if if I may use that image, mm-hmm. and not to expect them to act like each other or to appreciate or, or want or desire the same things necessarily. That right. said, this is also why I wanted to find out whether there were any meeting places, right and mm-hmm. and. In in mainly just again, because otherwise, you know, we risk being very split as as persons. So I, I think that, you know, I'll just say this that one of the the areas of conversation that was lively was around the issue of like fantasy, for example. So I mean the Orthodox world does have a certain kind of depth psychology in my experience. It it certainly runs very deep. Um and of course, many, many, you know, priests and, and spiritual fathers and mothers now are also psychologically informed. So it's sort of hard to say what's, you, you know, to just tease out. It's as if they've never influenced each other, but of course they have. But I think that there's there is a, always a concern about fantasy and what can come in is, is one thing that I've experienced. So when you're in this, you know in the clinical room and and a client comes in and has a dream about uh, i don't know it's a, a demon or a you know a nightmare with a mm-hmm. demon or something you know we tend to not immediately assume it's an actual demon, but, but that what's going on, what's the psyche, what's the dream ego saying you know uh, you kind of interpret it and analyze it. I think that images like that and others like uh, sexual images or or violent images have have had a, a different meaning in the orthodox church as more of a if not overtly demonic but a, a, as a symptom of passions that are or sins that are are in need of, of tending and they can be tended to with compassion but they're still seen maybe less i would i would I mean i could be wrong but i i would propose that they're seen less symbolically
1: Mm -hmm.
0: than in-depth psychology that that the the idea that there might be something else behind this image that's just trying to happen as a psychological event is not as focused on understandably because their focus of the interior life in the orthodox church is you, you know the union with god through prayer so it's it's a different it's a different emphasis and in that life you can you can have a lot of images come up that they will look at more as temptations or as something to be prayed perhaps through. Mm-hmm. Whereas we might, in the Jungian world, tend to look at them more as, "Oh, look, here's a fantasy. Let's work with the image." Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a different emphasis. And
1: on that, I, I, on that note, I wanted to ask as well about the dreams. Like historically, is that something that has been? Valued or put emphasis on in the tradition, or is it more a skepticism? More is there something you can say about that on dreams? Well, I,
0: you know, I, I'm not really an expert on that, so I don't, I don't really, I haven't studied dreams very much in the church tradition. But it is striking that they do show up in scripture, yeah. And you know, it says warned in a dream, and you know, an angel appeared in a dream. And So there's a kind of, I think there was a openness to. To, to, to dreams but again I think where you will you know as I'm thinking out loud right now I think the, the main area you run into trouble is that and this is a question of method you know the orthodox and and so let, let me lay this out without saying mm-hmm. that I'm agreeing or disagreeing mm-hmm. with one side or the other but this is my experience of each one is that in the orthodox church you are talking about the ultimate right you're talking about God and and there are truth claims that are made about God. In the Jungian world, Jung himself says, I, you know, no one can know what the ultimate things are. So I'm going to talk about psyche, and that's all I can talk about. And then, of course, he talks about God endlessly, but you're supposed to have caught that first caveat he makes where he's saying, mm-hmm. I'm not speaking as a theologian, I'm I'm speaking as a as a psychologist. The the danger, I think, on the orthodox side, of course, is when you make truth claims about God, you are making claims about the ultimate. And so people who don't share those, of course, are not going to understand or agree. but but it you know, it's it's that is the nature of religion, and that's the nature of the church to make these claims. I think the danger on the Jungian side can be that this, it becomes that the psyche is all encapsulating that everything is psyche, and you can't ever have an experience of God because even that's a psychological experience mm-hmm. that's yeah. generated by psyche. And I think that's the danger on the Jungian side. so mm-hmm. but but if you respect again that they each are coming from those two places and you understand that then there's going to be a limitation on how much you can agree on, mm-hmm. then okay, but you can still have a conversation. You know, it's it's still an interesting conversation to have. You just have to understand it that a very two very different places that we're speaking from.
1: Mm. When I would say you start that, that kind of warning to the field of depth psychology to make everything into psyche, it reminds me yeah. of what Sean McGrath, which has been a guest uh, on the show, and we also did a podcast together called Secular Christ. He speaks about psychological absolutism and the dangers mm-hmm. of that and the limits of psychology and, and understanding right. that better. But I was also thinking as we... Ambulated around, and as you uh, yeah help to unpack this beautiful quote, that which is not assumed is not healed
0: mm. I was mm. thinking
1: about a book that came out a few years ago, and I don't know if you saw it, but it came very popular. It's called No Bad Parts mm. by this Richard Forth, who developed a therapeutic system or technique called the Internal Family System, which is becoming oh, okay. very very popular. Um, mm-hmm. Which basically works much like active imagination—that you yeah, you get in contact with different parts and, uh, mm-hmm. and start dialogues—but it's a little bit more, I would say, maybe a bit more concrete and a bit more systematized. But it's just something with that tight and no bad parts because it connects mm-hmm. to the idea that it's all—it's all there for some sort of reason—and that we have to be be right. open to examine it and to look at it and right. and as you to see it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you know one of the things that I think it is important to to say, and I mean, obviously, there are <laughs> there are many different types of schools of depth psychology, and you know, many analysts out there. And so there's a whole wide range. But I think it you know, Jung talked about how you can only be morally responsible for that which you're conscious of, mm. right? And so i I, I do want to clarify that it's it's not in my understanding, at least that. Okay, if we go, if if everything is assumed and there are no bad parts, that then therefore everything goes. anything you can do whatever you want, it doesn't matter. It's not, you know, I don't think that Jung himself was sort of disavowing any kind of moral stance towards ourselves or the community around us mm-hmm. or, but but simply saying that First of all, you can't be morally responsible for what you're not in control of, and you're not in control of the unconscious, and you're not in control of the conscious. But you know, like you don't have even an understanding of why you're doing this kind of compulsion or whatever it is. And then secondly, that yes, there is every possibility that there is something really valuable hidden for you here. So even that and that's what we have to make conscious is what what's really going on. And then and then you can see whether you want to keep doing this or not, and how that squares with your own morality but i, I let, let me just read you this little quote it's in it's in the book um and it's i just came across it earlier I, it was saint maximus and i was just reminded um of how powerful this is i think uh, because i think it's so easily forgotten in our world in general and and it's not just the church that has morality you know as a kind of banner it waves and um And it's just a kind of interesting quote for, for, I think our times in general, but he said that uh, this was him writing on the, on the Lord's prayer that the spirit has to persuade the intellect to desist from moral philosophy in order to commune with the supra essential logos through direct and undivided contemplation for when the intellect has become free from its attachment to sensible objects, it should not be burdened any longer with preoccupation about morality as with a shaggy cloak. And I just I just love this idea of morality, preoccupations as a shaggy cloak. And i I like to think that Freud would have liked that too. You know, and, and of course, so Maximus is talking about this idea, of, again, sort of direct and experience of God through contemplation of the Logos. And this is very much a patristic idea. It, you know, it's a sort of a mystical apprehension of, of God. But I'm reminded of Jung's quote, and I I don't know where he has this, but he wrote somewhere that the, you know, the idea of the superego, Freud's superego, is a necessary substitute for an experience of the self. And I I just think it's so marvelous not to equate, again, the self with God, because self, even from a Jungian perspective, as much as it may connect to God, as Yulanov writes, it's also part of the created order. And and St. Maximus is talking about, you know, Apprehension and perceiving of, of of God, of the energies of God, but but analogously, this idea is that it's not morality that is the thing. You know, Maximus writes this elsewhere. He said that, as you say it, that the truth does not exist for the sake of virtue; virtue exists for the sake of the truth. Hmm. So it's 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 a it's both a, a guidepost. And a byproduct of engagement with the truth.
1: Yes. We had a lot of discussion, a lot, but some discussion on the podcast with, with different people around this uh, differentiating the superego from, from conscience, for example. So mm. I think that Jung also developed uh, his thoughts on so, I mean, his latest a uh, psychological view of conscience, where he makes these distinctions and and speaks of conscience as as, as the vox day or the you know, potentially the the, vo- the voice of God. And, mm-hmm. and and differentiating back from this yeah internalized father images or right images of authority and, and the importance of doing that work, like yeah, moving from a, a moral as a sort of idea of the of the mass to to ethics. So I just to ethics, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. to conscience and to, so was that true? Well, I was actually no,
0: please. No, and I'm just thinking in the role, of course, of, projection in in so much of what is ethical or not ethical that how we how we dehumanize others how we project onto them that the you know so much of the work of depth psychology and the recollection of projection off of people actually allows for a much greater morality in in a right in a way because you can actually you begin to engage with others as others and not just shadow projections or you know whatever other complex there might be so i think that the idea that, yeah, working through these issues actually frees up true conscience, kind of a, a true ethic of yeah. of relatedness makes a
1: lot of sense. And I mean, this is probably too big of a question, but, but is there something you could say on conscience, on its role, you know, in the orthodox tradition? I understand it's a huge question, but I do think you touch on it in the book.
0: Well, I think that just anecdotally... It's it's something that is considered to be a, you know a prompting of God in the heart. It's a kind of you know when someone's struck by a moment of conscience. It's it's part of how. I mean, I, I haven't looked at this sort of in depth theologically, but I I would myself link it to this notion of the image of God. In it, speaking if I'm speaking as a theologian, that that the, the image of God in us. It has this understanding of what's true in in it, embedded in it. And when we, you know, again, I I, I really love the works of Saint Maximus, and so it comes up a lot when I talk. But you know, to go back to Saint Maximus, he talks Mm -hmm. about how the passions arise when we uh, distort our perception of an object. And combine that with one of our natural faculties, like desire or anger,
1: mm.
0: and so it's it's again the natural faculty is good. It's been given by God. The capacity for anger is also the capacity for courage, and desire can be love. But when you when there's a distortion in your perception of something, it's then the desire becomes lust, or you know the, the anger becomes vengefulness, or you know so it it it's they get what they called they like to use the word distorted. And I think that conscience is, is that deep knowing in you that something has been distorted here and you're acting on it. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm, but I'm not, I don't know, mm. you know, I, I, that's not an area I've <clears throat> examined yep. overly much
1: theologically. Yep. Yeah. But moving maybe into to areas that I know that you, you have examined uh, deeply in your book, I was thinking about what you just brought up here eros and the importance of eros and desire, both in the mm-hmm. analytic process, but also then the question of its role in, in a patristic theology. Your chapter four is called Eros, Healing mm-hmm. Fire. Mm-hmm. That's a great title. So, <laughs> could you speak a little bit about eros and desire and what you found in your? in your research there?
0: Um, goodness, where to start? <laughs> well, I think, you know, again, I mean, so I'm just thinking for a moment how to frame this, but when I was working through this research, the there were two things Again, that I stood out at me in, this, particularly in a Jungian approach. Though it's also, I mean, I, I studied many of the other uh, psychoanalysts and really benefited from them as well. And I've always kind of employed a, an eclectic understanding in my own clinical understanding. So that's just sort of parenthetically. But but Jung has both this idea in his method that there is a kind of a psyche that is given. I mean, that that we have this, we are, we have been given wherever it comes from psyche self, And then there's, there's the, as we talked about earlier, the, the the telos of the person, the journey of the person, right? Through life and, and, you know, their, their own arc of, of destiny and, and healing and an analytic, you know, individual, it's, it's basically the path of individuation for them. Right. And I was astonished when I, was doing this research, I was really pulled to the to the works of St. Maximus. And I I was actually quite literally dumbfounded when I understood that a basic tenet of St. Maximus's understanding was what he called the the what are basically the logos of being and then the trope of being, meaning that being is given to us. And then there is the trope of being which is is how we again our arc through life that how we go through life what we do with our own sense of being so there was a kind of incredible overlap of understanding that made me want to really explore and so the first part the kind of the the logos of being the the psyche qua psyche and self itself that's one of the chapters in the book where i look at what I think was a kind of, it's the image of God. It's the innate impetus towards healing. It's, it's the kind of the blueprint of the self as Jung talks about. It's kind of what's given it's, it's what's there. Right. Mm. And the chapter on Eros is the next part, which is how you go, what, what takes people from a kind of, not stasis because it's not, static in, in in that way but it, a kind of potentia to an actualization right to a going out into the world and doing something to you know it's it's the innate talent to be an architect and then it's the drive to go to architecture school right it's the it's the it's the potential versus the actualization and i think that in in both of those whether it was St. Maximus or, or a more modern day understanding of the person, of course, Eros is, is key because Eros is, you know, I think it's, I discussed in that chapter, can be understood in a, in a lot of different ways. It's not just sexual, although it, it certainly manifests sexually, but it's, it's desire moving out into the world, seeking connection, seeking relatedness, seeking the object of the desire. And, um, and so that seemed quite. It, it seemed sort of to make it was common sense within the the psychoanalytic world. That it makes sense that desire would be so key. What I was surprised to find was how key it was in the theological world as well. That that it's the desire for life, for being, for God. It's it's the it's the the seeking of union with the good. That then also creates a kind of, doesn't create, but participates in a, in a thrust of Eros that is also about integration and not just, again, oh, you know, I, I think Eros is often confused with lust in, in, our, in our world. And it's, it's not that, it's a, it's a deeper, more powerful, broader, richer vein of, of desire that can unify and and can unite and can unite without confusion, different aspects, both of ourselves and of the cosmos, as as Maximus talked about. So it, but we need that thrust and we need that ability to, to love. And it's not a sentimental love. It's not a, it's not a moral love in, in, in that, I would say air quotes around moral in the sense like it, it's not, it's, it's, it's full of life and it's full of fire and it's it has to be real otherwise it's not eros it can't just be a kind of lip service to kindness um, so mm-hmm. so it's 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 i think it's very much related to this core sense of self that we were talking about and, and the true sense of self and of course god is love in in the christian tradition so it's all you know whether you're know con- you're contemplating god you're immersed in love you're it's it, and the images of fire abound as well mm-hmm. so but it's hard because then you 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 know you you can say all of that but then how many of us really live that way and I think that's where the depth psychologists really you know excel and they're the, all kinds of understandings of, of where eros can get um, stifled where it can be shamed where it can be blocked where it can be cause of great fear, where it can be attached to the wrong, you know, like fairbairn's idea that we we are casected to internalized objects, even if they're destructive. Mm. You know, the, the abusive parent, you, the child still loves them because that's their parent. And now, you know, 50 years later, that inner object still is the object of a lot of eros, even mm. though it hurts the psyche of the person, hurts the person in their life. So it's it's a you know it's a very powerful force hmm.
1: Hmm. well moving to another side then a link that you're drawing between patristic theology and analytical psychology has to do with the the belief in the the healing impetus of the psyche or the reliance of the Healing impetus of the psyche, right? Well, we are. Yeah, I, and I, think course, the listeners are aware that that's a fundamental in, in analytical psychology. But you spent some time also expanding on that in, in the book.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I think that's that is what I was sort of referring to earlier about the the kind of the logos of being oh. the 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 image of God in the person, from a theological perspective, or yeah. or, or what we, the psyche, the self, and yeah, I was reminded of this wonderful quote by Anne Ulyanov, of, of, of paraphrasing a little bit, but that the psyche insists that all of its parts be included, all of its feelers and all of its feathers. And I always get this wonderful image of a caterpillar with feathers coming coming <laughs> along. But you know, mm-hmm. the psyche can can mm-hmm. conjure up such strange images for us and such seems so alien and other to us. But but this healing impetus, I think that is such. A, gracious way of understanding these strange aspects of the psyche that can crop up and and be very uncomfortable it's part of the case to be made for that that which is not assumed is not healed is also that what shows up appears to want integration it appears to want inclusion it's not it's not indifferent to its it's lived outness in our lives, if that makes sense. So again, like a compulsion or a complex or a symptom that keeps bothering us, on the one hand, you know, if you're having panic attacks, I mean, they're absolutely awful and it is devastating. On the other hand, is there something there that is trying to get included and worked out and... and brought into life in a different way whether it's a wound or a or a desire that is seems to be too dangerous to have you know so it 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 just seems that in the living of it there is a a desire for inclusion but i think that that is the brilliance of Jung to say yes this symptom is not just a symptom that again we want to get rid of so that you're better functioning or you know people love to say what's quote unquote normal or what's quote unquote healthy these days but it's 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 deeper and bigger and and you know i would say better than that it's not just about being functional it's about living and and so there seems to be fundamentally a, a, a deep desire for life that can then get very distorted because of the hand we've been dealt and and the choices we make or some combination of both mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i think from a you know it's very important to, to see that from a depth psychological perspective and then just to say well that makes perfect sense because if the image of god lives in us it, what's it doing you know? i mean what just being very practical about it like what what would the point of it be if it means nothing in our lived lives and and this was a way of wondering if this is part of what that is
1: it's that this is part of the image of god and is there this type of openness also in the orthodox uh, experience or uh, you know as you experience it for for also i'm thinking now for desire for the passions for seeing and putting value to the to the longings of the body often i guess stereotypically we look at most christian sort of you know traditions as against that or you know right disown that
0: i think it's difficult to say it's one thing i can speak anecdotally and say that i've had mixed mixed reception i think there have been times when i have loaded some of these ideas. For example, I remember there was an article on on internet pornography addiction and they were talking exactly about, this is a psychological article, about that this was a kind of really a desire for intimacy and and connection and should be understood as such. And I, I took it to a priest and professor and said, what do you think? And he said, that's exactly an orthodox approach. That's how we would understand it too. And I thought, wow. You know, I, I I wasn't expecting that, but, you know, I've also heard others, it, it depends, you know, priest to priest, church to church, and not because the theology is actually that individual, but I think people, you know, they, they take it and understand it in their own ways and in light of their own background. And, and so you can certainly find a great warning against images of sexuality, of passion. I think that they, even in the early church talked about how, you know, when trying to do the liturgy or or to do something, you know, to engage in deep prayer, that, you know, the demons will send images of erotic yeah. temptation to, to derail you. And so, I, I, you know, I don't think that by and large in the church, if someone has uh, something like that, they go, oh, this is great. <laughs> Let's just see what this image is all about but but there the reason I think the conversation is worth continuing to have is because there is a deep respect for desire, and there is a deep particularly in the patristics focus on eros as a as a almost as like a power of God, right that it's there, so that's true, but then there's of course the 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 idea that that's not meant to be focused the difference is going to be on the object of the desire because it's one thing to, to love another person, but it's, it's relativized by the love of God. If that makes sense, it's, it's included within the love of God, which is the supposed to be, and the, what, you know, is the struggle throughout life to be the primary love. So it's not Oh I love chocolate croissants and I'm just going to eat as many as I can because that's that's my you know my right and I that's my desire and I'm living you know living life fully it's it's and that's not even a very good example but I think I'm just trying to say that the passions are constrained by an understanding of what's supposed to be ultimate mm-hmm. and on the other side you can say well sometimes therapy seems like it just unlooses the passions and everyone says, "Oh, good. Well, now I'm not repressed anymore." But that you know, but then where does it go? Does it have a does it have a a kind of life giving telos for the person? And and mm-hmm. I think that the idea that it just unlooses the passions and doesn't send them anywhere useful is a often a, a religious suspicion of therapy. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of mm-hmm. you know, it's it's again these are these are. Complicated areas to navigate and require respect for both sides, because there also often are assumptions about
1: mm-hmm. both sides. Well, we have we have already touched on, on such elemental questions for, for our human existence and how the field of orthodox theology and Christianity uh, engage with that, and also the field of analytical psychology. It's been already very rich, so I'm sort of <laughs> hesitant to, to add this last question because it's another a huge one, but I think I'll try still. Okay. And, and, and that is, uh, you, are, you are also uh, yeah. making a brief excursion on death. I think you write it like that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and tr- trying to look at and describe how analytical psychology and Orthodox Christianity looks at death. And you say, like, biological death is not the whole death. Mm-hmm. That death is not as an opposite to immortality, but to, to the true life. Mm-hmm. I thought that, yeah, felt very fundamental. And if you could just say a few more words about that, uh, your, you know, your exploration of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, it's tricky, but it, it kind of was born out of, you know, this idea they say in the church that Christ has defeated death. Mm-hmm. And okay, but everybody's still dying. So what does that mean? And you know, on the one hand again, speaking theologically, you can say, well, what it means for eternity and the resurrection and the resurrection of all you know all people to the you know the, the life to come, and that, that that there that this isn't the only life and that there's a life beyond this. But again, you know, Jung would say, well, I don't know anything about the life beyond this one. I can only talk about this one. And I think that both Orthodox Christianity and depth psychology could agree that there are, there are, I hesitate to even say people, but it, just to start by saying that there are people who, who live dead even though they're alive, that who seem as though they're, they're sort of dead on the inside even though they're alive. And I, I think even that's a bit of a, <clears throat> A straw man, but it's that there are pieces of us that are dead mm-hmm. even while we're alive. Or there are pieces of us that are dormant or as if dead. Yeah. And there are times in our lives when we live, but we feel dead inside. And, and I don't just mean by dead we feel nothing or we feel like, you know, but we can feel like we're not there. We can feel like we're one step removed from our lives. We can feel like nothing we do helps and nothing ever changes we can feel despair we can feel walled off you know there's so many ways to experience a, a, a kind of deadness and and we can keep living while we're doing that you know inside biologically we're living and we're getting up and making coffee and you know maybe getting the kids to school or getting ourselves to work or whatever it is, but there's that kind of deadness. And and we can look at the reasons for why that is. I think despair is usually a big part of it. But the idea that that, that can be changed, that that can that we can, you know, again, Yulanov in one of her books, I think it was her book on poison ivy, at the end of it says that the goal of a depth analysis is not health it's not to acquire the ability to have symbolic thinking it's not you know it's it's not a a cerebral exercise and or exercise in self-insight it's to come alive it's livingness it's that sense that you are just deeply alive and connected to life and you know and i think that that's that's the analog on the depth psychological side and i think on the to, to life and to death. And I think on the theological side, that there is a sense that people experience in the sacraments, the sacraments of healing and communion, uh, in confession, of of touching and being touched by a life, a sense of life that is beyond us, that is the the uncreated energy that that is a kind of radiance that comes in. so that even as you're, struggling with your dead parts and maybe are in an analysis or therapy at the same time wrestling out these dead parts there's also this uncreated life and that is is being offered and to participate in and that you can do even though you will physically die someday so Mm -hmm. it's sort of an interesting place to end right because actually we're back right on the the point of there are analogs, but they're not the same because the the Orthodox Church is talking about God's uncreated energies and you can if you're not going to psychologize it, then you have to respect that that's what they're claiming. And on the other side, there is this the deep psychological work of working through your own dead spaces and into life. You can bring those two together. They're not the same, but they can meet and they and they They do meet, which is, I believe, which is why I was trying to write this book.
1: Well, it sounds indeed like a good place to to stop. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Beautiful. And thank you so much for for sharing with us. And yeah, thank Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Jacob. It's a pleasure.